You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 252 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall with the last show, we set the stage for the Battle of Galveston, Texas, which took place on January 1st, 1863. With the start of this show, we're going to pick back up right where we left off last time. And at the end of the last episode, we said that at Galveston, Colonel Burrell's defenses and Commodore Renshaw's resolve were soon to be put to the test, because Confederate Commander John B. Magruder had been told that New Year's Eve would present the perfect combination of tide and moonlight to launch his surprise attack on the Yankees. And so on the evening of December 31st, even as the Confederate ground force readied itself to march over into Galveston, Leon Smith and the rebels' little cotton-clad fleet steamed slowly by Morgan's Point at the northern entrance to Galveston Bay. Suddenly, a messenger caught up to them with a note from the flamboyant and theatrical Magruder. It read, To Major Smith, in command of the gunboat expedition, and Colonel Green, in command of the land forces on board. I am off, and will make the attack as agreed, whether you come up or not. The rangers of the prairie send greetings to the rangers of the sea. But when Smith and Green received that message, Magruder's rangers of the prairie were already encountering their first difficulty. You see, Prince John's plan called for his men to haul over to Galveston Island more than 20 pieces of artillery, and some of them were quite large. But at the time, the only bridge to the island was a two-mile-long railroad bridge. Previously, the railroad bridge had been crudely planked over to facilitate the crossing of Confederate cavalry patrols, which crossed it from time to time. But now the mules that were pulling Magruder's artillery took one look at the ramshackle arrangement and refused to step foot on it. Precious time was lost as the mules were unhitched and the rebel troops took up harnesses and ropes to haul the artillery over the bridge themselves. The most unusual piece of artillery that Magruder dragged over to Galveston Island was what he called, quote, unquote, railroad ram, which was an eight-inch Dahlgren mounted on a railroad flat car. A breastwork of cotton bales had been built up on the car, and the gun would fire from behind them. 
This would be only the second use of a rail-mounted gun in battle, and it had been Magruder who'd made military history by using the first such arrangement during the Seven Days Battles in Virginia six months earlier. Magruder's original plan had called for his artillery to be in position along the waterfront in time to begin the bombardment of the Union ships at about midnight. But because of the delay associated with the bulky mules and the seven to nine miles the guns needed to travel, the Confederate artillery didn't get in position until almost 4 a.m. Under Magruder's direction, the guns were then spread out along the waterfront for about two and a half miles. Not all of the Confederate guns were positioned at street level, though. Some of the smaller field pieces were apparently dismantled and hauled up to the second stories of buildings along Strand Street, and from those elevated spots they fired out at the enemy ships in the bay. Shortly after 4 a.m., Magruder personally fired the first gun at the USS Owasco to signal the start of the Confederate attack. As the bombardment opened all along the waterfront, Prince John declared, Now, boys, I have done my best as a private. I will go and attend to that of General. And with that announcement, Magruder hurried off to his headquarters, situated at a large house a couple of blocks away from the waterfront. Magruder knew from personal reconnaissance several nights earlier that the Federal's Colonel Burrell and his Massachusetts troops were located behind their barricades on Coon's Wharf. It had taken only one look for Magruder to realize that a frontal charge down the single plank still leading to the wharf would be suicide. So his battle plan called for Colonel Joseph Cook, using the cover of the pre-dawn darkness, to lead about 500 men in a wading charge through the shallow waters on both sides of Coon's Wharf. To complicate matters further, Magruder's plan called for the men to carry ladders with them. They were to wade through the shallow water to the end of the wharf, then climb up the ladders and assault the Yankee defenders from the rear. Although not a bad plan in concept, the idea, in reality, proved to be a disaster when the ladders turned out to be too short to reach the top of the wharf. Wet and disheartened, Cook and his men waded back to shore under fire from both the Union ships in the bay and the Federal infantry above them. At this point, it looked like the Confederate attack was going to be a complete failure. Daylight was fast approaching, and the Union ships had by now pinpointed the locations of the rebel gun positions and were returning fire with disconcerting accuracy. Magruder ordered his reserve force to move up, but had them take cover behind the stout custom house to avoid the worst of the heavy federal fire. Theophilus Noel, a scout and messenger who was, quote-unquote, packed like sardines, along with the rest of the reserve force behind the building, later recalled how, quote, we were rushed in behind the custom house a brick building which had been erected only a short time before the commencement of hostilities, and ordered to be still. By this time, the balls and shot and shell from the Federal fleet was playing havoc with the brick and stone buildings that were then on the island. 
and mortar and dust and brickbats and pieces of shell were about as thick as anyone ever saw weasels in a barnyard. And there we were in a very dilapidated, if not scared, scared condition. For to be placed in a position where you cannot fight back is one of the most dreadful things that a soldier has no liking for. Noel also recalled that to ease the tension, some jokester called out in a loud and apparently quite profane voice, Boys, be bleeping still, for if the bleeping Yankees hear us and find out where we are, they will bring out that bleeping gun they have that shoots around corners. Well, although the bleeping Yankee gun that could shoot around corners never materialized, three enemy cannonballs did punch entirely through the custom house while Noel and his compatriots took shelter behind it. Things were not going well for Magruder, so with sunrise, he'd authorized Brigadier General William Dirty Neck Bill Scurry to supervise an orderly withdrawal of the Confederate artillery from the waterfront, and Prince John was beginning to consider ordering a general retreat when the arrival of Major Smith and his cotton-clads changed the momentum of the battle entirely. (laughs) Dirty Neck Bill is a great nickname. Yes, I'm sure his mother was so proud. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, the naval side of the Confederate attack was arriving on the scene late, because although the rebel ships had been within sight of the Federal squadron at midnight when the attack was scheduled to begin, well, as we already know, the rebel ground force had been unexpectedly delayed, and so didn't begin the bombardment on time. And Major Smith had been told, in no uncertain terms, that it was the land forces, not his rangers of the sea, that were to fire the first shot and initiate the attack. Depending on which source you consult, Smith either grew tired of waiting and steamed off up Galveston Bay to await the signal to attack, or the rebel ships were spotted by the Yankees and Smith withdrew up the bay. But in either case, Smith and his cottonclads were quite a distance away when the Confederate ground forces finally opened up their bombardment. But when they heard the rebel artillery start shelling the Yankee ships, both Bayou City and Neptune began their dash down the bay at the rear of the Federal squadron. As Bayou City came within firing range of the Union ships, Captain Armand Ware of the 1st Texas Heavy Artillery made final preparations to fire his big 32-pounder at the enemy. He fired three long-range shots with little apparent effect, and as he was ready to fire a fourth time, a nearby onlooker asked him to give the Yankees a New Year's present from him. Ware responded, Well, here goes your New Year's present, and yanked the gun's lanyard. But as the big cannon fired, the tube exploded, killing Ware and wounding several other members of the gun crew. At this point, things looked grim for the rebels' little cotton-clad fleet. They hadn't even reached the Yankee ships, and their only big gun was already out of action. But strange as it may seem, Major Smith wasn't particularly deterred or discouraged by the explosion of Ware's gun. That's because he had understood, even before setting out on this dangerous mission, that the cottonclad's only real chance against the Federal gunboats was to ram them and then send over a boarding party. 
When one of Colonel Green's sharpshooters had asked whether the cotton bales positioned on board the rebel ships offered any real protection against Federal shot and shell, Smith had honestly replied, None whatever. Our only chance is to get alongside before they hit us. And that, in a nutshell, was Major Smith's plan. He intended to single out the first Federal gunboat he encountered and then have Bayou City and Neptune ram that enemy vessel from opposite sides and board her. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. As luck would have it, the first Federal ship that Smith and his cotton-clads encountered was the Harriet Lane. The ship, mounting six large guns, was the most powerful Union vessel in the bay. But she was also a side-wheel steamer, which meant she had large paddle wheels on each side of her hull. This made her very maneuverable, but also made her particularly vulnerable to just the type of attack Major Smith intended. If the two rebel cottonclads could ram Harriet Lane from both sides and disable her paddle wheels, then the Federal ship would be helpless. Harriet Lane was still lying at anchor, shelling rebel targets on shore when danger approached from another direction. Major Smith aimed Bayou City at the Federal ship's port paddle wheel and made his initial ramming attempt. Unfortunately, this first attempt was a failure, and Bayou City merely scraped by, doing more damage to herself than to Harriet Lane. The next ramming attempt, on the beleaguered Federal ship's starboard side, was made by Neptune, 
under the direction of Captain William Sangster. This attempt was even less successful. Neptune struck Harriet Lane a solid blow, but missed the starboard paddle wheel at which Sangster had aimed. The collision was violent enough, however, to do significant damage to the Confederate ship's bow. Neptune quickly began to take on water and go down at the bow, but Sangster was an experienced Galveston ship captain, and he coolly steered the sinking cottonclad onto a nearby sandbar, where she sank in water so shallow that her decks were barely awash, and so the rebel sharpshooters could continue to fire at Harriet Lane. By this time, Bayou City had managed to come about and was making another ramming attempt on the Federal ship's port side. This time, there was a tremendous collision as the rebel cottonclad plowed straight into Harriet Lane. In fact, Bayou City's bow lodged so deeply and tightly in the enemy ship's side that the two vessels became locked together. Within a minute or two of the collision, Confederate boarders under the command of Major Smith and Colonel Green were swarming from Bayou City over onto the deck of Harriet Lane, and they quickly seized control of the stricken Yankee warship. The rebels lost no time in hauling down the stars and stripes and turned the captured ship's guns on the USS Owasco, which was approaching rapidly. But as the Union ship drew closer, the fire from Harriet Lane's guns and from the Confederate sharpshooters, caused the Owasco to retreat, and an, and an uneasy quiet settled over the bay as the Federals considered their options. Leon Smith now attempted what may be one of the greatest bluffs of the Civil War. He had started the battle with two cotton-clad gunboats and a couple of other small vessels. Now, one of his gunboats, Neptune, was sunk, and the other, Bayou City, was locked up with Harriet Lane and incapable of movement. Because of the angle at which the decks of the captured Union warship and Bayou City were now leaning, it was difficult to work the guns of either ship effectively. But Major Smith was nothing if not bold, and now he sent Captain Henry Lubbock over to the Owasco in a small boat to demand the surrender of the entire Federal squadron. After Lubbock had repeated his demand to Captain Richard Law of the nearby gunboat USS Clifton, a truce was granted to consider the request. However, the truce in the bay didn't extend to the opposing ground forces. Faced with the possibility of being subjected to a renewed bombardment, and with no viable options for retreating from the wharf, the besieged Massachusetts troops surrendered to Magruder. The reason that a truce on the water was necessary to consider the incredible surrender demand by Major Smith was that the Federal Naval Commander, Commodore William Renshaw, was not immediately available to participate in the negotiations. You see, while the battle had been raging along the waterfront, Renshaw had been frantically, and unsuccessfully, attempting to extricate his flagship, USS Westfield, from a sandbar off Pelican Point, where it had run aground. But when he learned about the truce agreed to by his subordinates, Renshaw angrily dismissed the whole notion, and directed Captain Law to make preparations to take the rest of the squadron and evacuate Galveston Bay. 
But Renshaw didn't want to leave Westfield in the hands of the enemy, so at about a quarter to nine that morning, he ordered the ship's crew taken off and had a long fuse laid to the magazine, intending to blow up Westfield and deny her use to the rebels. Once the crew and their belongings were safely away, Renshaw poured turpentine over the deck and lit the fuse. Something went wrong, though, because as he descended the ladder into his gig, Westfield exploded in a thunderous blast, killing Renshaw, three other officers, and all of the sailors on the waiting boat. Thus ended the Battle of Galveston. With the exception of several small supply vessels that were captured by the Confederates, what was left of the Federal squadron steamed out of Galveston Bay and headed for New Orleans. Confederate casualties were relatively light, with only 26 men killed and 117 wounded. Magruder reported to Richmond that he had captured between three and 400 Yankees, as well as four ships and 15 guns. As the news was telegraphed around the South, the success at Galveston was trumpeted in the newspapers to offset the Confederate retreat from Murfreesboro after the Battle of Stones River, and Magruder became the hero of the hour. Both the Confederate Congress and Texas legislature lost no time in passing resolutions congratulating the general on a quote-unquote brilliant victory. From the federal standpoint, the defeat at Galveston was one of the greatest debacles of the war. David Farragut called the battle the, quote, most unfortunate and, quote, most shameful incident in the entire history of the U.S. Navy. And it wasn't only a symbolic defeat, since the loss of Galveston was a serious blow to the federal strategy to secure the Texas coast and then concentrate Union military resources in the Gulf against Mobile. Looking for a scapegoat, the Navy would eventually conduct a court of inquiry in New Orleans. Since Commodore Renshaw had been killed while trying to scuttle his flagship, the blame for the defeat fell upon Captain Law. Law, who had led the Federal ships away from Galveston after the battle, was court-martialed, not only for failing to come to the aid of Harriet Lane during the engagement, but for abandoning the blockade of Galveston. Law was found guilty of all charges, but his punishment was converted from a possible death sentence to mere suspension from duty. For a short while after the battle, it appeared that the Confederate recapture of Galveston might only be a temporary victory. That's because another Federal squadron arrived off the entrance to the bay, this time under the command of Commodore Henry H. Bell, and made preparations to enter the harbor and seize the town again. But just before Bell was about to launch his attack, the Confederates had another amazing stroke of luck. On January 11, 1863, the rebel commerce raider CSS Alabama, captained by Raphael Semmes, arrived off Galveston and lured the USS Hatteras away from the rest of the Federal squadron. In a battle that lasted less than 15 minutes, the Alabama sunk the Hatteras and with her Federal hopes of recapturing Galveston. The loss of Hatteras and fears that Alabama might still be lurking in the vicinity caused Commodore Bell to pause and reevaluate his plans. 
The Confederates in Galveston took advantage of this delay to strengthen the fortifications protecting the port. By the end of the month, Bell had given up on his plans to retake Galveston. The Battle of Galveston was the last major combat operation in which John B. Magruder would play an active role. When the war ended, he fled to Mexico with other Confederate officers to avoid potential prosecution. Eventually, however, Magruder returned to the United States and settled in the Houston area. He died in Houston in 1871 and was buried there under modest circumstances because of his poor financial condition. However, the people of Galveston didn't forget Magruder. Years later, his body was moved to Galveston's Trinity Episcopal Cemetery, and the general, who was widely viewed as having saved the place from the Yankees during the war, was buried beneath an impressive obelisk, displaying some of his military achievements on its sides. It seems altogether fitting that Prince John Magruder should rest for all time near the site of one of his greatest triumphs, a victory that may well be one of the most unusual and dramatic of the entire Civil War. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Galveston and the Civil War, An Island City in the Maelstrom by James M. Schmidt. The title and subtitle of this book pretty much say it all. It covers Galveston's antebellum status as the largest slave market west of New Orleans and a hotbed of secessionist sentiment, the events of the war years, and Galveston's distinction as the last major Confederate port to surrender. So that's Galveston and the Civil War, an island city in the Maelstrom, by James M. Schmidt. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page. And if you haven't already, then we'd love to have you join our growing little community on social media. And then we wanted to let you guys know that just yesterday we released members episode number 75, which was the second part of our look at the life of John C. Calhoun. So the members of the Strawfoot Brigade can head over to the website and listen to that show, including the newest members, Roxanne and Lisa. And that's it for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.